It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. And welcome back into the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Schusterman. And the draft is finally behind us. Uh, it's been an exciting few weeks leading up to the draft. And now we are reflecting back on the draft. And one team that had about as busy of a draft as you can get is the Arizona Diamondbacks. And we are joined by their scouting director, Derek Ladnier. Uh, Derek, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, no problem, Jordan. Glad to be here. Uh, so, Derek, obviously it was a busy few months leading up to the draft for you. And I wanted to start off uh, with kind of a process question. Um, what is different about preparing for a draft with this many picks versus the average draft where you've got one pick in each round? Um, I'll be honest. It was, um, I mean, we, we kind of, well, we didn't kind of, we did plan on the potential for this to happen basically as soon as our draft was over last year. And we knew that there was going to be a potential for us to have multiple selections. We, I, I don't think anybody anticipated the number of selections that we were going to have, but when we started doing our summer coverage with all of the showcases, with the Cape, with the fall coverage, basically I wanted everybody to understand that every player that they evaluate going into the following spring was someone that is potentially going to be in play for us high in the draft. And, you know, in years past, you can kind of, you know, predict that certain guys, and even this year you can predict certain guys just are not going to get to you. But after that, everybody else was, potentially one of your selections. So I would say the attention to detail on every player, the amount of coverage that we had on every player, the amount of analytic data we had on every player um, was imperative to us to be able to, when we're selecting that high, to, to take those guys and know that we've done our due diligence with every one of those. Like everybody does with their first round pick, we just basically approached it like we had seven of them. Derek, Jim Callis here. I was curious... How much stress is there as a scouting director when you've got a haul like this? I mean, do you feel pressure because of the opportunity before you? And how does it compare? I want to say you've been involved with the number one overall pick twice, right? Once with the Royals, once right. with the Diamondbacks. How does it compare to having the very first selection in the draft? Um, I, I think there's probably I, – I, I guess there's parallels to it because, you know, the number one pick is supposed to go out and be a star and – you know, the face of the franchise. Well, when you have this many picks, I guess you could say that the, the intensity is the same as having the number one overall selection and the scrutiny put on the haul that you get probably has the same level of intensity. Um, so, so I do think there are parallels with that. And, and honestly, the, there was a lot of pressure. Um, I mean, it was in a good way, not in a bad way, but to be able to, hopefully reshape the dynamics of this organization, starting with our farm system and ultimately our major league team, you know, we have to do a good job. And, and, and we were given a very fortunate opportunity to be able to do this. And the pressure was on not just me, it was on the entire organization. And, and we put the resources out there to be able to do what we needed to do. There were no limitations on who we saw, when we saw, I mean, we, we really, from top to bottom, 
uh, I can't tell you how many looks we had on every one of these players that we selected in the top seven picks, but, but even further than that, you know, we approached this with the same intensity the second day that we did the first day, you know, we, we still, we still have a chance to make an impact with these guys because we have some financial flexibility to do some things we want to do. And, and that's pretty much how we, we approached it. Uh, Derek, it's uh, Jonathan Mayo. And, you know, outside of uh, making sure that Randy Johnson uh, wasn't physically and, and emotionally exhausted from, I felt he was at the podium like every 35 seconds on day one. When you look back at that day one, I know you had to look ahead to day two quickly. Did things go, you know, pretty much according to, to plan? I mean, from our vantage point, we talked a lot about it on the air. You know, you kind of went uh, high, high upside, high school guys, especially early. Uh, you got even an upside college guy like like Trey Jamison. Ryan Nelson's got a lot of arm strength. I mean, did did you do philosophically what you guys hoped to do when you were planning for for all those picks, especially uh, those day one picks in particular? Yeah, you know, I, I was asked this question earlier today on a previous interview, and and honestly, we went through when I tell you preparedness, it was we were so prepared for any different scenario that could happen, you know, if somebody falls in the draft or whatever. I mean, we did, we did mock draft after mock draft as to what could happen, what potentially could happen, what direction we would go. So we basically did a lot of different models uh, internally as to the different directions that the draft can go, because as you guys are well aware, you never know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to get picked in front of you. You don't know who's going to be available later on, how you would go about it during the course of a draft because that's real time, you know, and, and we, we literally went through every different scenario. So I, I will tell you with great conviction that we were prepared for just about anything to happen in this draft. And I think our approach was really good as far as trying to put players in buckets for certain rounds and certain selections and being comfortable with those players where they were on the board. And if, and if one of those guys that was in a higher bucket lasted to the next pick or the next pick. We just kept going down the list. It, it wasn't obviously a signability issue with anybody. It was one of those things where we're going to try to capitalize and maximize the value of every buck that we have and try to get as deep in this draft as we possibly can. With other scenarios where if a player fell and all of a sudden you've got to invest more dollars in that guy to where it affects later round draft picks, we, we went through all those different scenarios. And, and as the draft was unfolding, we felt comfortable with all of the players and where we selected them. And I guess strategically, it looks like upside, then some college guys. And, but, but all of these players were players that we had put in spots that we wanted to take in those specific selections. And it, and it, and it worked out well for us. And, and that literally comes down to the planning and all of the hard work that everybody put in this office to prepare for this draft. Derek, how much did you guys go back and look at, at teams who were in similar situations in the past? Because one of the things that fascinates me when you look at, for want of a better term, you know, these teams that had draft bonanzas, is that nobody ever really, you know, comes away, you know, with, with you know, if you have seven picks in the first 75, you know, five real solid big leaguers. You know, you look back at the Rays in 2011, and they had a ton of picks for the second round. They got Blake Snell and, and nobody else who's a real difference maker, or the Diamondbacks in 2009, you had a very good draft, but the best pick was really Paul Goldschmidt, who who was in the eighth round. He wasn't one of the early picks. And, you know, I've gone back and looked, and I think the one team that got three solid big leaguers out of a draft bonanza, and it's the only one, was actually the Red Sox when Amiel was there. Amiel Saadi, who's the assistant GM of the Diamondbacks now, and they got 
Jacoby Ellsbury and Jed Lowry and Clay Buckholtz. Did you guys try to look back at what teams had done in the past? And, and maybe did you guys learn anything from that if you did? Yeah, so we did a, we did a lot of extensive research on those, and and like you said, Amiel was part of a very successful draft in Boston, and Greg Lonegro happened to be here. He's one of our national guys. Was with the draft with Arizona back in the day, so you know there was a lot of knowledge, and um, you know you, you never really know. I mean, when you when you draft the players, you obviously draft them hoping every one of them are going to be a big leaguer, and. I don't know if there was anything that was glaring because I'm sure when all of the other teams that made their selections, they felt the same way we do right now. Like we did great and time will tell. I mean, there's certain things, you know, guys get hurt, they get traded, whatever the case may be. Time will tell. I mean, we're very pleased with the draft. We were very pleased with the, with the balance of the draft. I mean, we love the talent that we're able to get in this draft, but I think over time it will be determined how well we actually did. I mean, right now on paper, I think we, it was excellent. And, and, and I think people feel the same way. It's just, they have to go out and play. And then ultimately, you know, were we right on the evaluation time will tell whether we were, but at this point in time, we feel good about it. And, and all of the people that have been in the other drafts and analyze the other drafts that, that teams had that weren't as successful, we feel confident that, that, that the hall of players that we, we got will create tremendous value for this organization. will certainly boost our, our farm system significantly and ultimately what those, whether those players end up playing for us or part of a trade to help us win time will tell, but, but, you know, I just, I just think the depth of talent we're able to add in one draft is significant for this organization. Jim is going to trademark the term draft bonanza, by the way. So be careful if you use that in the future. I, I like that. And I, I've been using the word buckets of players. I think I'm going to use that for further reference that, uh, that we put players in buckets. So I, I, I kind of like that one. Yeah, that, no, that works too. I, you know, one of the things you know, we made such a, a big deal and everyone, you know, we've, we've talked about the draft bonus pool system on this podcast. We talked about it on, on the network and you guys had, you know, the, the most money to deal with. How much did you have to balance knowing, okay, we can roll the dice and, and maybe, uh, be a little riskier in, in going after a player uh, and not, you know, and, and with the idea of like, well, we shouldn't just spend the money because we have it. Uh, obviously you'll, you'll likely spend all of your bonus pool money, but, uh, but that, that idea that like, just because you have the money doesn't mean that you need to take every risky uh, tough sign that, that comes your way as the draft unfolded on day, especially, you know, on days one and two and maybe into the 11th round. Yeah, I mean, we, we discussed that extensively. I mean, and, you know, if there would have been that player that we felt like we needed to use a significant part of it to secure, we probably would have. But we just felt like the talent that was still available on the board would give us the flexibility to get more players, I guess, more bang for your buck. Um, I mean, it was another one of those those scenarios to which we, we did play out prior to the draft. And then as the draft starts to unfold, we realize, OK, we, we really like these players that are still available we're going to be able to maximize a dollar on every player. And then ultimately at the end of the day, after day one and day two, maybe we end up with some money leftovers for some of the guys that we drafted after the 10th round that can even add to a greater haul for this organization. And we really, we, that, that ultimately was the approach that we ended up taking was just take the players that we like. Let's don't overspend. I don't want to say overspend, but let, let's don't spend it all on one guy and then compromise the rest of our draft because we went all in on one player. I, I think we ultimately end up spreading it out and getting all of the players that we wanted 
and being able to maximize and have the flexibility with the dollars to do what we needed to do. Yeah, Derek, it seemed like the draft really kind of came together nicely for you guys. I mean, even after, I think you guys had made 10 picks, you know, you're only in the sixth round, but you, know, you look up and there's, you know, Andrew Salfrank, who, who's got, you know, one of the better curveballs in the college ranks. And then around seven and eight, you get two of the better hitters in the college ranks and Spencer Brickhouse and, and Dominic Canzone are still there. You, you just touched on this a little bit. And I know guys haven't signed yet, so I'm not trying to pin you down on specifics. Do you guys feel like you'll be able to to make some significant post-10th round signings too after you get all the guys in the top 10 rounds done? I, I think when it's all said and done, um, we're going to have some flexibility to maybe do something with a couple of players. Uh, I mean, ultimately, who they end up being, time will tell, and how much we ultimately end up having, time will tell as we go through the process of signing all of these players. But our approach was, and that's why we selected some of these players that we felt like probably should have gone much higher in the draft, understanding that their bonus demands are going to be far greater than that of someone after the 10th round to give us the flexibility to, to ultimately sign one or two of these players that, that really want to go out and play. And understandably, their, their dollar value is, is higher than where they were selected. And you guys know as well as I do, there's a lot of good players that slide in the draft just simply because you run out of slots to fill those players with. And then teams start selecting them and then trying to make a run at them later on. I think we're going to have some flexibility to be able to exercise that plan and maybe even maximize the draft more than we already did. Derek, uh, last one for me. And, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that you guys were prepared for pretty much anything, the, the way the draft would unfold. But it it's, can be very unpredictable. And you guys had to react so quickly is there, is there one guy, and it's not commenting on any other teams or anything, that you were surprised was, the, was there for you in any given round that you guys, you know, had a little extra, uh, you know, fist pump because you thought there's no way this guy's going to make it to this pick, but here, here he was and you were able to take him? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the, the specifics of the players, but, but I will say that there were on a couple of occasions that – I was extremely pleased that that player was still available, quite frankly. And, and like you said, Jonathan, you, you really, it's so unpredictable and, and why, and this is simply based upon our evaluations. Obviously other organizations have different evaluations on every player than we do, but from our perspective internally, there, there were several players that, that when they were staring us in the face, we were like, wow, this is, this is, this is going the way we want it to go. I will say that. Well, Derek, thank you so much uh, for joining the show uh, and giving us some insight into the the draft bonanza, the buckets of players, however you want to describe it. Uh, this was this was great, and we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Jordan, no problem. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Thanks, Derek. And a big thank you to D-back scouting director Derek Ladnier for joining the show. Uh, and now we are going to do a little bit more of draft chat beyond the D-backs without him. Uh, and we've got a lot of great post-draft content on uh, Pipeline, on MLBPipeline.com. And so let's start with the, the obvious question, which is who had the best draft. But as a team that had seven of the first 75 picks, uh, Jim, you were saying, if you don't pick the D-backs, it's crazy. But so before we pick a non-D-backs uh, if you want to just review some of those players that they got, Jim, and and, and why this haul is, is so valuable? Yeah, and, you know, Derek, like Derek said in the interview, like, like it always looks great at this time, like, like especially when you have this many picks. But I, I really like the balance. You know, he cited that. I like the balance they got, too. I thought, you know, they start off with Corbin Carroll, who's one of the best hitters and, and fastest runners and better up-the-middle defenders in the high school class. 
who, you know, I thought was a nice get at 16. They come back, they get a couple projectable, you know, high school arms. You know, Brandon Malone already has present stuff. Blake Walston might have been the most projectable left-hander in the draft. Then you come back and you get Dre Jameson, who is a little bit undersized at six feet, 165. And yet he, you know, hit 98 almost every time out this spring for Ball State. So he looks like he could be a starter. And, you know, that's just the first round. You know, you, you get more college arms and Ryan Nelson and Tommy Henry. You get a great college defender and Dominic Fletcher. You get a bunch of college bats and Tristan English and Spencer Brickhouse and Dominic Canzone. You get an athletic, you know, high school shortstop center fielder with bloodlines and Glenn Allen Hill. And you got two more college pitchers. Connor Grammis can, can get the ball up near 100 miles an hour. And probably will more regularly as a reliever. And Saul Frank, their sixth rounder in Indiana, had one of the better curveballs in, in the college ranks. So, you know, I forget, I don't even know how many players I just routed off there. It sounded like 13 or 14 right there. But I mean, that's just the first state round. So, what I like is it's, you know, they, they really diversified the portfolio. All these guys are not going to pan out, it never works that way. But you could see potential in all those guys I just cited through the first eight rounds. And I know when I was tasked with studying, okay, who had the best draft? And yes, obviously the Dimebacks came out number one. The thing that was interesting to me though, when I did the research was that yes, okay, they did have a little extra spending power. Although I think they, they're going to spend on the guys they took on day one, but on day two, even though they had more picks than anybody on day one, on day two, they still landed more top 200 guys with five than any other team did. So even when it was kind of level playing field, everybody picks one time each round, they, they still came up with more top 100 guys than anybody else. Uh, and Jonathan, uh, Jim was was the one tasked writing the, the the article on pipeline for the best halls in the draft. But I'll give you uh, an opportunity here to pick uh, maybe one of these uh, six other teams that Jim mentioned. But who was the draft that stood out to you uh, that was was especially loaded besides the D-backs? Well, it's gonna it's gonna sound a, a little little bit lazy, uh, but I do like what the Rays did. Um, and I, I say it's lazy because that's who Jim put it number two and. They had, you know, two supplemental first round picks. So they had uh, extra to work with. And uh, what I thought was interesting about it is, you know, everyone would talk about the Rays in 2011 and the the cautionary tale that was uh, that they, I think, were a little more aggressive in taking some chances. And, and, And I like that. And they got this interesting, like, combination of players Obviously, J.J. Goss, who they got in the supplemental first round, you know, was a guy that many of us had put in our first round mocks, uh, one of the better prep arms in the country. So the fact that he was there for them, uh, you know, worked out for them. But then they got like some college guys with some interesting upside potential for a variety of reasons. You know, their first pick was Greg Jones, uh, who has top of the scale speed. You don't see that too often, college guys with that. And he's got upside and he was getting hot as the season went on and it looked like he was starting to you know, find his groove uh, swinging the bat. Uh, so, you know, he's got upside. Seth Johnson from Campbell is a, a guy who's only been pitching for a short amount of time uh, because he was an infielder previously. So there's a lot of upside there. Uh, we talked about him quite a bit leading up to the draft that uh, with his stuff, if he had been only a pitcher for three years of college, maybe he would have been a top half of the first round kind of kind of player. So they, you know, to me, they got three legitimate first round guys with those first three picks. Um, you know, John Dostakis is more of the pitchability lefty, but it's a, a solid guy uh, in that sort of, I felt like Jim talked about the second tier of 
of college lefties a lot leading up to the draft, and he was right in that mix. Graham Stinson was a guy who uh, was, you know, close to the top of our boards before the season started, but then he missed most of the year with a hamstring injury. So, like, I, I thought it was a really interesting combination of, yes, uh, a lot of college guys, uh, and and maybe some of them have question marks, but I don't know that I, – I can't think of a, another time where one team took – a bunch of college guys with that much upside potential. That is uh, that is an interesting way to look at it. And I actually want to stick on Stinson for a second because are we sure he's going to sign? Like this is a guy who was like projected a top 15 pick. I know he missed the whole season with injury. Uh, is there any possibility? I haven't heard or read anything about this, but is there any possibility that he thinks, oh, I was a first rounder coming into the year and I was injured? Uh, that he doesn't sign for fourth round money, or can we expect that deal to get done? Maybe, maybe you don't know, but any insight into that? I, I think our rule of thumb for both of us generally is: if you get picked in the top ten rounds, the team's going to expect you're going to sign because we're going to look up the sign deadline, which I believe is July twelfth, if I've got my July days correct. And there's going to be like two guys in the first ten rounds who haven't signed. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think everybody's curious, like, and maybe the Rays know, and maybe teams know. Like what's going on with him physically? I mean, he, he was he made five starts, pitched less than twenty innings before leaving. I guess this was back in March with what was termed a hamstring injury. I had scouts kind of speculate, yeah, it's a hamstring injury that's going to need Tommy John surgery. Like so, nobody knows exactly what's going on with him. Um, so I think that'll be part of it. You know, if he does need some sort of surgery, that you know, if he literally, I mean, if he had the surgery today, he's probably missing next season anyway, and probably behooves him to to sign. So I would anticipate he'll sign. I have no idea, you know, what it's going to take to sign him because, I mean, come into the year, he was going to go in an area where the slots were worth, you know, upwards of $4 million, um, which he, you know, he's not going to get that in the fifth round. Right. And, uh, and I guess, yeah, time, time will tell. We'll, we'll obviously have some answers on that in the coming uh, week. Okay. So, so, so the Rays, Rays and D-backs, that's, that's, that's a good one. Uh, so there's another article that we have uh, on Pipeline about your guys' favorite non-first round picks. Obviously, it's, it's easy to look at first rounders and be like, oh yeah, I like him because of course they're all really good. Uh, but you guys listed uh, some some fascinating picks from almost uh, entirely rounds rounds three through ten, and I uh, just wanted to give you a chance to to, to pick some specific ones that you uh, were especially fun or great value. And uh, Jim, I'll start with you. Um, I think my favorite one, and I guess I'm focusing on the ten teams I wrote up. And he, he probably would have been my even if I didn't write him up was Noah Song, who the Red Sox took in the fourth round. He the last I checked, and he may get passed with teams moving on to the College World Series, was leading NCAA Division One with 161 strikeouts. You know, he's, he's coming out of Navy. He's got two-year military commitments. So that affects his long-term potential. But he, he's at least a second-round pick, if not for the military commitment. He's got a mid-90s fastball. He's got a pair of potential plus breaking pitches in his curveball and slider. And I think he's going to be a, an absolute steal for the Red Sox, you know, with the caveat, if his stuff holds up, while he's on this two-year military commitment. So for me, I may pull a Jim Callison pick two, um, if that's allowed. It's allowed. You're, you're, you're clear. You know, I'm not going to protest because I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We really need to get, like, Panera to sponsor uh, this podcast. Like um, thank you very much. So the, the two I'm going to pick uh, are both in the American League West. One, one is the Mariners pick of Austin Shenton. Round. Um, some of the back uh, the backstory is is moving, and he's from 
from the Pacific Northwest, from Bellingham, Washington, north of Seattle. Uh, his family's back home. He had a really, really good cape where if he had sort of carried that over, I think, I don't know that he wouldn't necessarily have been a first rounder, but probably a, a second rounder uh, as a, a good like hit over power uh, third base type. He really scuffled out of the gate uh, this year at, uh, at Florida International. Uh, I think, and a lot of people think a lot of it was because his Mom uh, was undergoing cancer treatment back home. She seems to be doing fairly well right now. Um, so, uh, you know, so that's good news. And he started to heat up later in the year, but the ship had sort of sailed for him to go highly. So they may have gotten a really good value and a, a guy from their own backyard in, in the fifth round uh, in Austin Shenton. And then the other is more pure projection upside, and that's Eric Rivera with the Angels out of Puerto Rico. Uh, they got him in the fourth round, and they're going to let him play both ways. Uh, the Angels now are like the the team that does that the most, it seems. And he had like a ton of raw power at the plate. Everyone sort of saw him as a hitter. And then he went to East Coast Pro Showcase and literally swung through like seven balls in batting practice. And that kind of killed his momentum, even though he didn't swing the bat well in games. Uh, but So there was worry about swing and miss. But the Angels announced him as a pitcher, and while they are going to let him hit, it's mostly they're going to let him hit while he's developing his secondary stuff. He is as raw as raw can be, but he's big, and he's athletic. He's got a good delivery, and he's up to 95 miles an hour, and he's left-handed. Uh, and He's shown uh, some field of spin uh, and things like that, so they think it's all in there. Now, it may take a while, and we may not hear from him really. You know, He may spend – two years in, in, in the complex league in the Arizona and the rookie league out in Arizona, but it was just a really intriguing and very angels like pick uh, to me. Yeah. It is right now that like we have teams drafting guys as two way guys and it's not, it's, it's very intriguing, but it's not like totally crazy. Like teams are more willing to do that. Uh, and that is, is, is very, very fun. Of course you could check out all of their, their favorite uh, non first round picks on MLB Pipeline. I want to ask another uh, kind of broad draft question. Uh, we kind of talked uh, to, to, to Derek uh, Ladnier about uh, guys maybe he was surprised that fell to him. Um, but as you guys were, were watching the draft and you know, on, on MLB Network on draft night, were some guys that fell uh, maybe beyond uh, what you expected either in the first round or even fell to day two that you were surprised made it to day two? Uh, who, are some, who are some names that stand out in that regard? Uh, Jim, we'll start with you. Yeah, the one that, that surprised me the most, I, I guess I was thinking outside the first round, and I'll, I'll think about the first round in a second. I, I didn't think too many guys really fell in the first round, to be honest with you. But um, I, I was surprised that Ethan Hearn went in the sixth round to the Cubs for a couple of reasons. One, we had him rated as the best high school catcher in the draft. It's not a good catching draft. And even when it is, catchers always get overdrafted because of scarcity of positions. I, I would have thought, if you'd asked me before the draft, I would have said Ethan Hearn's probably going to go in round two. Maybe round three, but probably round two. And then he went around six, which also indicates, like I mentioned before, that Jonathan and I always answer with the kind of same default answer. If he's going in the top 10 rounds, there's like more than a 99% chance the guy's signing because teams are going to sign all but like two of the 300 or so picks that go in the first 10 rounds. Um, so I was really surprised he went in the sixth round. I, I would have thought he would have gone, you know, higher than that. I mean, he's, like I said, the best – High school catcher in the draft, I think, was the consensus. Um, and, you know, there's power, there's arm strength. He's improving behind the plate. I thought that was a, a really nice pick for the Cubs, assuming that they're going to get him signed. Uh, qu quickly on Hearn, do you think that that just has something to do with the relatively 
uh, poor uh, high school catcher hit rate uh, over the last few years. That maybe that that his his um, you know his category of player is his, his demographic maybe hurt his draft stock, even though it had nothing to do with him as a player. You know what's interesting about that is I would say no. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think that's it because they still get drafted. Although <laughs> he was the first high school catcher drafted, which I did not realize until I was just looking at the uh, MLB draft tracker. Um, I don't know what exactly happened there. I don't think that was all of it. I mean, people know that that hit rate is bad right. and they still overdraft catchers in general. Um, so I, I don't think that's why he fell to the sixth round, but it is interesting looking at this, that he is you know, the first high school catcher taken and the only high school t- catcher taken in the top eight rounds. Yeah, that is that is that is unusual and definitely could could just be an off year, be a fluky thing, but uh, definitely something that I noticed as well. So, Jonathan, uh, uh, you want to give give a name that you were surprised that slipped a little bit? Sure, I think. Well, I mean, you know, obviously the the quick easy answer is the fact that that Matt Allen went to, uh, to the yeah. third round. I mean, that, you know, that but that, that I'll pick someone else because I think that's the, the yeah. one we all thought was going to go somewhere in the first round because. We knew that he was going to have, you know, going to have to get paid to to sign, and that still is going to happen. It's just that the fact that you know, he got to the Mets, uh, the Mets had a sneaky good draft um, uh, without any extra picks. So kudos to them. I'm going to go with another high school arm, Evan Fitterer um, from Southern California, uh, just because you know it, it's going to be another kind of thing where I'm sure he he went to the Brewers in the fifth round. We had him ranked 74th. Um, so it wasn't like a huge uh, drop. I'm going to guess that there's a certain dollar figure uh, that was going to have to be met. Um, you know, he is committed to UCLA. So there was some thought that he's a tough sign. Uh, the Brewers, I'm sure know what that number is, is going to be, but there's some projection along with some now stuff that make him really kind of interesting. Um, especially if he holds on, he like he had a tendency to throw, try to throw both the slider and a curve. Uh, if he focuses on one, I think one is going to make a nice jump forward. Uh, he's got uh, like really prototypical pitcher's body at six three one ninety five. I think he's going to uh, get stronger. I got you know everyone knows how much I don't like comps, but there were some young Kyle Hendricks comps there, but with a little more fastball. Um, so it's like good stuff. Touches 95 now with a good field of pitch. That you know that that's a really good combination. Uh, that assuming he does sign with with the Brewers out of the fifth round, that that was a good get for them. I'm trying to look at this too while you guys were talking for a for a college player who slipped a little bit because you know the high school guys usually when they slip it's financial reasons right. or you know team like pushes them down because he wants extra money. Um, I don't see a real obvious. I mean, there's guys like Drew Mendoza went in the third round. Um, you know, that could have been bonus related. You know, Tommy Henry went in the second round, although there were, you know, he was so up and down at the end of the year. But there there really wasn't like that I see a big shocking college guy who, who plummeted. Will Holland went in the fifth, but he had such a bad year. So it's not such a, a you know, a, a huge shock. Right. Um, yeah. We had him, you know, we had him ranked. A little higher. I was doing the same same thing while you while you were answering. So I didn't find yeah. I didn't find one that really jumped out as a guy who was like, "Wow, I can't believe we haven't talked about him yet." Yeah, and uh, Will Holland. I remember Jim. You were uh, 
you were pretty sure he was going early on day two. I remember you were, you, that was, I think that's the guy you threw out there as your, as your prediction of the Orioles. Oh yeah. That was me <laughs> when I, when I was, I was guessing. And yeah, yes, he was. I, it was my, my guess at three, one. Cause I, my, my, my sources weren't getting back to me quite quick enough so I could look smart and, and predict the pick uh, of Zach Watson, who I think it wound up being, but yeah, that, that, that is right. And you know, Will Holland uh, yeah. uh, advancing today in an NCAA regional play as we record this. So Will Holland, even though he had a, very rough start to his season, kind of picked it up a little bit and uh, will now go to the College World Series. And I think that's a great pick for the Twins in the fifth round because the thing was, even when he was going bad, the tools were still there. I mean, the, the, of all these sh- college shortstops, and I forget, like, I know there were nine shortstops in the first round, maybe six of them were college guys. He can definitely stay it short, and he can run, and he's got the arm, and he might be a 2020 guy. The tools were still there. And it was interesting because I watched a little bit of their, their game on, on Saturday when they were rallying in the eighth inning to, to come back against North Carolina in the first game of that series. And everybody told me, he's way too spread out the plate. Like they don't know if they're, he's trying to hit for home runs, but he got too spread out the plate and was trying to launch too much. And it messed him up. He looks more upright. Like he did not look spread out. So I think whatever got into his head early, he's gotten away from that. He played better in the second half of the season. And, and I think that's going to be an absolute steal. Cause I mean, Will Holland was a guy coming into the year. We thought was a mid first round pick and they got him in the middle of the fifth round. That, that's an absolute steal. Yeah, and you will, uh, you Twins fans will be able to watch Mr. Holland in the College World Series uh, starting this weekend. So congratulations to him and the Auburn Tigers for advancing to Omaha. Last question to you guys. Uh, this was article that you had, Jonathan, uh, that went up earlier uh, this week, or I guess yesterday, uh, I should say, is, is of course, you know, the, the thing about the baseball draft compared to the football and basketball draft is that, you know, you're not necessarily going to see these guys right away, but you had an article about which of these guys we could be seeing uh, quicker than, than others. Um, uh, uh, Kyle Wright uh, was the first guy to to make it from the 2017 draft. We have no one yet in the big leagues from from last year's draft. But you you, you gave some some names from from both college hitters, college hitters, high school hitters, high school pitchers. Who who do you think could be the quickest mover? And if you had to pick one guy right now, you got to got to give it all to one name. Who would you say is going to be that guy in the big leagues very very soon? Well, it's funny because history says that it should be a, it should be a pitcher. Um, most of those guys. Uh, yes. who have moved quickly uh, have, have been pitchers. So I'm going to go with a hitter. Um, I like it. Because like that's it. how I roll. Uh, I am, I'm going to say Andrew Vaughn is going to be the, quick, the quickest to the big leagues. I think that his ridiculously advanced approach at the plate, his knack for making consistent hard contact, uh, you know, all are going to work in his favor. Um, this is a guy who came close to walking twice as many times as he struck out in his college career. I think he's going to make very quick adjustments. He could be the kind of guy that if they wanted to, uh, you know, they could send him to, to double a f- to start his first full season. And if you told me that he would be ready to attack big league pitching by the end of his first full year, I'd believe it. Now I don't know that that's going to happen. Um, but if you're going to force me to pick one, I will pick Andrew Vaughn and I will go back and point out the fact that, Evan Fitterer was drafted by the the Marlins, not the Brewers. Ooh, okay, so there you go. Marlins fans will be more excited than Brew. You got the Brewers fans all excited. They're like, "Do we get an extra pick? This is incredible." Yeah, I don't remember <laughs> taking that guy. Oh no, it's because Mayo can't 
It's okay. Uh, Jim. Those M's are tough, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, on the draft tracker, I have I I've fallen and, victim to the same thing. Trying to figure out is that the Marlins or the Brewers? It's I, the new I Marlins logo. Especially because I was yeah. scrolling through like round by round as Jim was talking, finding a guy that that fit for me, and I was like, oh yes, Evan Fitter, that's good. M for Milwaukee. It's it's the the new nope. Marlins logo. The new M is 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 made it more confusing. So I I don't bl- I don't blame you at all. Well, thank you guys. I you know I I appreciate you having my back. <laughs> anyway, back to quickest quick quickest to the yes. big leagues. Jim, do you have a guy? Are you gonna are you gonna go the standard? Jonathan's already bucked the trend. He's he's picked the hitter. So. Uh, would you would you pick a, a pitcher, or are you going to go with with Mr. Adley Rutt? No, no. Well, because the problem with the, with any of the college guys getting up there too quick is you get the whole service time considerations, and the Orioles are going to be terrible for a while, and the White Sox are still not very good. And and I, I'm not disagreeing with the Vaughn pick, but I think both those teams next year are going to be playing the old service time considerations game and coming up with reasons not to promote those guys. I I'll go pitcher. Um, I'll just I mean. I'll go with the starter. I'll go Nick Lodolo. I mean, I, I don't think he's, you know, the, the sexiest, you know, guy who's been the first pitcher taken in a draft ever. Um, but he's kind of solid across the board, solid three pitch repertoire, solid command, solid performance this year. The Reds need pitching. I don't think they're going to be afraid to move him along uh, pretty quickly. So I, I, I'd say him. And if we want to go and, and, and go for the easy reliever uh, path, I think Matt Cronin with the Nationals is a lefty with really high spin rates who can move really quickly. Um, so he, he'd be my reliever pick if we if we take the easy reliever route. Also, uh, well, I feel like I need a reliever okay, pick. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one. Go go for it. I know he's picking too. Well, Jacob, yeah, Jacob, <laughs> right, Jacob, uh, Jacob Wallace, who I did put in the in the story. Uh, you know, tied the single season saves mark for UConn this year. Uh, I think he saved uh, – well, he, he saved 16 this year. I think he had 28 for his career, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, the, the the thing that makes me think that he could move very quickly is the huge advancement he made in his command. It started over the summer. Right? He threw 12 shutout innings for uh, on the Cape in relief, and then he just didn't walk a lot of guys and missed a ton of bats, the kind of fastball slider combination that you really like to see in short relief. So I think that – he is a guy that could move uh, very quickly uh, up the organizational ladder. Uh, I do very much like the uh, the Wallace pick, although Matt Cronin uh, might be the Nationals' second-best reliever right now. So we might need to be getting him there to the bullpen as soon as <laughs> possible. All right, guys, thank you so much for reviewing this wonderful draft with me. Uh, I'm looking forward to – I mean, I've loved the draft conversations. But I guess we should probably pay attention to some prospects, to some big league stuff. Uh, this is minor league stuff now that the draft is over. Um, I can't believe it's over, honestly. This, this, has been, this has been a long few months, but it's been a lot of fun. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I am your host, Jordan Schusterman, and we will see you next week on the Pipeline Podcast.